Since my interview with David Borish about his movie, Heard, Inuit Voices on Caribou, the film has been picked up for a Canadian broadcasting release, beginning with a live screening on CBC Atlantic on Saturday, August 6, 2022. The film will also be available on CBC Gem for free across Canada beginning the 5th of August. I do hope you take the time to watch it. Meanwhile, this conversation was very inspiring as it presents a whole new way of looking at documentary films. Isn't it wonderful when creativity can be used to benefit global, cultural, and scientific issues? As David puts it, what if video interviews could be used not only for video production, but also as a form of data to be analyzed and gain a more in-depth understanding of the knowledge participants are sharing. In order to deliver both his film and his academic research, Borsch adapted and repurposed the coding, searching, and filtering tools within two distinct video editing software, Final Cut Pro and Lumberjack Builder. I very much enjoy speaking with intelligent and forward-thinking people, and I believe you will enjoy this conversation. It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. I'm here with David Borish, PhD in Public Health and International Development. But I met you, David, through your work on this beautiful film called Herd. Your methods of working with it were really interesting to the scientific side of everyone's brain. So you have the creative and you have the scientific going. And I really want to talk to you not just about the film, but about your data management on the film and how you did that. So first of all, tell us about the film. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. So the film is all about Inuit experiences and relationships with caribou in the context of caribou population declines. So it's about this human-animal relationship in the context of dramatic changes to this relationship that's been going on for many generations. So I guess for a bit more context there, I've been working with Inuit communities in Labrador, which is a subarctic part of eastern Canada. And we've been working to create this community-based documentary film that shares the Inuit voices, Inuit perspectives and experiences with this change in caribou populations. We've been working on it for over five years now, and we're hoping to release it later this year. Can you go into a little bit more detail for those of us who aren't familiar with that relationship between the humans and the caribou? Tell us a little bit more about that. Why is it so important? Inuit communities across Canada have had a deep and enduring relationship with caribou for many, many generations, for thousands of years. Caribou are a really important part of people's diets, food security. They're an important part of people's culture, emotional well-being, social connections, ability to go out onto the land, ability to share cultural knowledge with younger generations. This animal is just a fundamental part of these people's lives, and it has been for so long. I guess my own work from more the academic side was looking at the kind of health and well-being dimensions of this relationship between these people and this animal. Tell me about the film and where it was shot and when did it start? A little bit about it. So I guess within that context of the changing caribou populations in Labrador, Inuit communities across Labrador were saying, you know, we want our voices to be heard. We, we want 
our experiences to be shown to other people. And so there was this idea of creating this documentary film that would be kind of a collaborative effort across the region. And for a bit more context there, we worked with two different Inuit regions, uh, the Nunatsiava region and Inuit in the southern part of Labrador called the Nunatugu region. In the context of the changing caribou populations, Inuit across Labrador, both in the Nunatsiavut region as well as in the Nunatuvut region, so Inuit in the north and the southern parts of Labrador, they were sharing that there needs to be a creation of some kind of community-based documentary film that shares their lived experiences, shares their voices about what it means to have these caribou population declines and how that's affecting people and communities across Labrador. And so there were discussions after there was a hunting ban enacted in 2013 on we need to create this film and it needs to be done in a very collaborative manner across different sectors, across different disciplines and across different worldviews. And so there were discussions around we need to create a team of people from these different communities that have the wildlife conservation background, that have the Inuit knowledge background, the health and well-being backgrounds, and form this project that would be both a storytelling project through the creation of a film, but also some kind of research project that explores these perspectives in depth and hopefully can be out there to have this Inuit knowledge and Inuit data shown about what the caribou population declines mean for these communities. I came into the project in about 2016 when we decided to work across a variety of different communities. And so the film itself talks with over 80 people across 11 different communities that are very remote places. Uh, there's no roads to many of these communities. So there was a lot of travel and collaboration to get to these communities to talk with people and document their experiences. So were you there for a lot of the filming or did you come on afterwards? I did all the filming, really. You so, did all the filming. Wow. Yeah. I'll say that the goal was to create this in a way that Inuit would be leading it. But they wanted someone with the kind of creative uh, film background and uh, film skill set to be able to not just make this as, you know, a tag along to a research project, but to make this an engaging film that could be shown on TV and to broad audiences. And so that was my role was to come on as mainly a filmmaker. And so I was behind the camera for the vast majority of the shots and the footage collected for this film, but it was all working in collaboration with Inuit communities and our partners to be able to make sure that this story was aligned with their own priorities, values, and needs. And so although I was behind the camera, I was always working with my colleague, Ina Shywak, who's uh, an Inuk woman from Rigolet, Nunatsiavu. And we would co-interview people, would talk with people across Labrador. We would film aspects of, of their lives. And I also worked with uh, different Inuit members for filming caribou, in particular, an Inuit drone operator from Rigolet, Nunatsiavu, named Eldred Allen. I would be filming on the ground while he'd be filming from the air to capture the footage needed for the documentary film. It's beautiful stuff. What were you shooting with? So I was shooting with a Canon C100 and our drone was an Inspire. So you shot with a Canon 100 and the drone was an Inspire. And how did you manage all your footage in the field? I mean, you're dealing with cards and how did you copy the media and 
Were you staying in places where you had electricity? You're talking about these remote areas. I'm wondering if you had everything you needed to back up the production. How did that work? It was a lot of preparations beforehand. And when we were filming, it was all during the winter because that's when it's easier to go see caribou. And people are more in the mindset of talking about caribou during the winter and the spring. But that made filming more challenging because I had to film outside in the cold. And in some cases, you know, it got down to minus 40 Celsius or more in some cases. So there was definitely a lot to prepare for on the kind of filming side. But, you know, all these communities, they have electricity and things like that. There's no problem there. It was more so getting to these communities. They're, they're flying communities for the most part. Otherwise, you could snowmobile there during the winter. I had to keep good track of batteries for filming. I had to make sure that I was backing things up on external hard drives, you know, every night, as soon as I got back from day of filming or interviewing, I had to make sure that we were uh, sending these hard drives to different places that we had backup so that it wasn't always on me to carry them. So there were a lot of different pieces to think about when filming in, I guess, remote places, but also in cold conditions. And I'm sure, you know, other filmmakers that do this kind of work are in similar positions. I've done a lot of filming in the mountains, for example, for the ski patrol. I think the coldest I've been is 20 below. I've never been 40 below. I can't even imagine. How did you keep your face from freezing, let alone the batteries working? Did you put them inside your jackets to keep them warm? Yeah, absolutely. Luckily, uh, the batteries I had actually did pretty well in the cold. And I mean, when it was really, really cold, we typically didn't go out to film. But there were definitely a few days where, you know, I had to keep the batteries right next to my body to keep them warm for me to be able to use them. But there were also, you know, the constant issues of going in and out of warm and cold places. Uh, so there was the fog issues, the physical yeah. issues that my face, you know, definitely hurt in cold conditions, but it was more so the, the hands and the fingers. And as any camera person knows, you know, you need that dexterity to be able to get the shot. And when your hands are just straight numb, it's it's not easy. So hand warmers really, uh, I think, saved my life and got a lot of the shots needed for this film. I think what I used to do is I used to put the cameras and the batteries in plastic bags when I would go mm -hmm. from one temperature to another. Did you do that? I did some of that. It worked with varying degrees. So, yeah. you know, it was kind of hit or miss, I found. Where are you from originally that you could bear all this cold? I grew up in Ottawa. So I was okay. more used to colder winters. Uh, it was still uncomfortable in a lot of cases, but it's not like it's always cold up in, in Labrador by any means. You know, some of the, the best memories I've had in my life have been around this time of year. Labrador is just beautiful because it's, it's getting warmer, but there's still so much snow and ice. You can just travel anywhere. And, you know, some days I was in sweaters or even T-shirts. It's not like it's all minus 40 and below. What has happened to the numbers of the herds since the 90s? Complete collapse, over 99% decline. There's this hunting ban that's a really important part of the story because it means that Inuit are not legally allowed to hunt caribou anymore. So that's kind of front and center in the film. And since the ban, the caribou have continued to decline. I mean, it's very focused on caribou and Inuit and Labrador, but it, it really it tells the story of what do we do as species are declining? And what does that mean for the people who rely on these animals? How long did it take you to make this film? 
it's been in production for a few years, but it's kind of hard to say because we went on major pauses with COVID, with a number of other issues. I'd say it's been in production since 2016. You know, people always ask when you're working on documentary films, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? And I think they don't really think about the fact that it takes years to make these movies. And sometimes if you stop too soon, you've missed a big part of the story, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it can take a long time to make any kind of documentary film. And I think in particular, the approach that we took by having it community-based meant that it naturally is going to take longer to get feedback and insight from everyone that's in the film. And these are not necessarily communities that you can just send a digital link to. We have to go back to these communities and show them in person so that we can get their feedback that way. So all that can be months and months, uh, but hopefully the end product is going to be more accurate, more ethical, and more valuable to those people. Do you mind talking about how you got it financed? Because this is not a cheap endeavor. No, not at all. Pretty much the vast majority of our financing for this film came through academic grants because this film, we framed it as a kind of a knowledge mobilization dimension of the research. It's a storytelling piece that is integrated into the actual analytical process of learning more about this public health and well-being topic and challenge. And so I got funding through a source from the government of Canada called the Social Science and Humanities Research Council. We also got funding through a number of other grants that helped to, to move this forward. And a big part of it also was the support from our partners, the New Nazi government, the Nunatubu Community Council, and the Torngat Wildlife Plants and Fisheries Secretariat, which is an Inuit co-management board in Labrador. And so these three partners who were leading this work as well, they were instrumental, so many reasons, but also for that financial support to move this project forward. I do hope you get distribution very soon. This looks like a beautiful film, and it's also one that has a story that really needs to be told. You had an unusual way of working with the data. Can you tell us about that? I was brought on as a filmmaker to put this film together in collaboration with Inuit, but I was also doing a PhD that was involved in this work. And the kind of academic requirements of putting together a thesis and writing articles and things like that, it didn't necessarily lend itself well to the film process. But I, I knew that when I was doing my PhD, I didn't just want it to be written outputs that would be geared towards academic audiences. I really wanted film to be part of that process. And so what I did, what I tried to do was as much as possible blend documentary film with qualitative inquiry so that we could have a variety of different outputs at the end, which we succeeded in doing, having a full-length feature film, a short film, journal articles, a photo book, all these things came from one overarching approach of this blend between film and qualitative research. I mean, just to talk a bit about how I did that, I, I recognized that qualitative researchers, when they go out and interview participants and community members, a lot of the things that they do during an interview are very similar to what documentary filmmakers do. At the end of the day, they're both going out and trying to document people's voices and lived experiences, and then somehow making meaning from those interviews and putting it out into some kind of narrative format, whether it's a film or a journal article or whatever, maybe a book. 
I recognize the kind of overlaps and synergies between these broad fields and tried to integrate them as much as possible. And this really worked during the interview process when I was co-interviewing with my Inuit colleague. We talked to over 80 people. So we had hours and hours of video interview footage that was great. And I knew that you know this would be fundamental to creating the film, but also for the research process. But once I got back home and I had all this data to work with, I was then a little bit stumped because I realized, okay, I need to do two very different things with all this same information. I need to write a thesis and I need to co-create this documentary film that isn't just going to be you know, a research video. It's going to be something that is going to be emotionally engaging, hopefully in film festivals, broadcasted, all these things. So I need to figure out how do I do this in a way that is hopefully the most efficient of doing both. So that led me to explore different ways of using video editing software in new ways, in ways that wouldn't just be towards creating a video output like a film, but also ways of using these video editing softwares for qualitative analysis so that I could save time and work on these two pieces simultaneously to have the film as well as my own thesis and journal articles that were co-created by our Inuit partners. So what NLE were you using? What was your main editing program? I used Final Cut Pro as our main editing software to create the film, but I also used Final Cut Pro to do some of the analysis. Um, And a fundamental part of all this work was also the software Lumberjack Builder. This is a fundamental part of how I both analyze the qualitative data, but also started to build storylines for the documentary film. This is a program called Lumberjack Builder. And for some of your audience that might not know about it, it's a great platform that helps people text edit video interviews and footage. I think it was geared towards documentary filmmakers and others that work with large amounts of video interview data and want to make sense of this information by connecting text with what people are actually saying in the video interviews. And this was great for the documentary purpose and great just from a filmmaking perspective. But I was looking at this from a different lens. I was looking at, okay, how can we use this for my qualitative analysis, for the thematic analysis that I was going to do for my research? And so just to walk it through at a very high level, all this text is connected directly to the specific part of the video and interview. You can break this text, you can favorite it, you can add different keywords. There's a lot of different things you can do with it. And the way that maybe documentary filmmakers would add keywords that would help bridge certain concepts and organize uh, this data to then bring into a video editing software like Final Cut Pro, I looked at this as, okay, this is how I'm going to code all of these different clips, all these different text by text pieces so that I can use this for my qualitative analysis, at least at the early stages of it. I did this for every single piece of text. Some of the keywords that I added, excitement, uh, joy, land, sharing, these are things that this man had talked about in this one minute part of the interview. These are concepts that I could then start to explore in more depth from kind of a thematic analysis perspective. You know, I did this with each of the participants. And as I mentioned, we talked to over 80 people. So we just had tons of information to explore and go through. 
And we talked to people all across Labrador. We talked to people in different environments. Everything was very carefully coded. So this process in itself took a very long time to go through and listen to everything people were saying and adding some kind of codes that I could then use later on. I think the keywording in Builder works a lot faster than the keywording in Final Cut would have because that would have taken forever. Red is all of the media clips that are in your library and the green are the ones that you've transcribed, right? Yes, there's definitely repeated interviews here, but Mm -hmm. the green are the transcribed video clips. I guess a key part of this work was after I coded these interviews, all this information was then brought in to Final Cut Pro. Once everything was coded in Lumberjack, I then brought all this information into Final Cut Pro. And you know, I, I did this so that I could work towards the actual film itself. But for the quality of analysis, that wasn't actually important. So what I did, I looked at all the different keywords and I started to look at relationships between what people had talked about. So as an example, for the code joy, when people talked about feeling some positive emotions of happiness and joy when talking about caribou, these are all the different clips out of all the 80 plus interviews where people talked about joy. And there's some interesting things you can do in Final Cut that I don't think were ever intended for qualitative analysis, but I repurposed them for that. And as an example, the filter tool that I popped up. So when looking at all the keyword or all the clips that talked about happiness, joy, you can also look at, okay, how many of these people talked about other concepts? For example, let's say elders. Okay, so out of all the people that talked about happiness and joy, there's only nine of these individual clips that talked about both joy and elders in the same clip of that video interview. And you can go further than that. You can see, okay, out of everyone that talked about happiness, elders, and let's say economics. Okay, so no one, at least the way that I coded it, talked about these three concepts together. And so, you know, I would just go through pretty much every single theme, every single code that I coded for, and just explore these different relationships between these different concepts. And that told me information about what people were saying, what was important to people, which informed both the qualitative analysis and the creation of journal articles, but also it very much informed how I created the film itself, because in a sense, it was data-driven storytelling. And as an example, people talk a lot about different social connections with caribou, which is something that we hadn't really anticipated before. And because there were close to 70 different interview clips that talked about social connections, that informed our understanding of what this relationship was like between Inuit and caribou. And from these discussions, we didn't really think about it earlier on, at least I didn't. But because we had the data to kind of back it up, and because there were such rich quotes and video interview clips that we had in this one theme, this became a scene in the film. So I guess in summary there, it was a data-driven process to figure out, okay, these are the things that people are talking about. These are the, the number of people that are talking about this particular concept. Maybe this should go in the film, or maybe it shouldn't. Anyways, that's how I went through exploring a bunch of these different 
concepts and relationships to each other. And there's some really interesting things that you can do with this information. One of the things that I found very beneficial from using a process like Lumberjack Builder for the qualitative analysis portion of the work was that I wasn't just reading what people were saying. I was listening, I was watching, and I was reading all at the same time. And that gave me a much more holistic understanding of the data set, because I think that there's something problematic about interviewing someone and extracting that information from them and not seeing the knowledge that they shared as part of the knowledge holder. All this information is so tied to these individual people, especially when you're talking about social health, cultural information. And so by listening to what people were saying, by watching, by seeing their emotions, all that influenced my own understandings and how I would include a quote in the film or in a journal article or not. And just as a few examples, there was a few times where I would read and maybe a certain quote in this didn't necessarily stand out to me. But when I listened and I watched the person talking about it, the way that they were looking, their body language, the way that they emphasized the word, that told me, okay, that is so important. I need to include this, even though I wouldn't have seen that by simply reading it. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a kind of magic that happens when you can read, listen, watch what people are saying. Um, it kind of all comes together. And even then, it, it doesn't give you the full picture of actually being there with the person, but it's closer to it. So those are some of the things that I thought was beneficial about this. And a really cool thing that you can do then is there's different ways that you can then visualize this information. And this is something that I experimented with. I, I call it a, a photograph. It's seeing the people behind the data in a more conventional quantitative graph. Graphs are really great for sharing quantitative information about certain trends and say in this case, you know, it tells us in this graph that there's a lot of people that are talking about the concept of loss in relationship to this specific graph, social connections. And that's great. But when you're talking about qualitative information, none of that is portrayed in a graph. You can't just scale people's quotes and experiences down to numbers. And so what I hope something like this can do is that you can actually see the individual quotes behind the data that informs this graph. It shows the potential of what you could do because you could present qualitative information in the form of a graph, but you could click on each of the data points and hear the specific quote that made up that part of the graph. So again, it's just one idea of the kind of ways that you can use video as qualitative data and visualize it in ways that are, I think, engaging and also connect the knowledge holder with the knowledge. That's amazing. It's all Photoshop, but based on the data and I had it all organized and everything, but I think there's a lot of potential to do more things with this kind of information. Because if you're working on a documentary film and you've talked to 20 people, that's great for the film, but there's so much more that you could do with it. You can present information in ways that people might not necessarily think about, and that could inform your understandings about the topic. And that could also help with the impact of the film itself, because it's not just a film. You could write articles, you could present data visualizations. 
I just think that there's a lot more you could do with video information. Well, when you're talking about documentary film, I think that most filmmakers get into that field because they have something they want to say, something mm -hmm. they want to experiment with, or something they want to research. This takes it all to a, a whole different level. This is my first large-scale film. I've worked on a few others, but I never had the resources to do what I did with this. My goal is to do this kind of work moving forward as much as I can. <laughs> I created an educational document for anyone that wants to do the kind of work I went through in Final Cut and Lumberjack Builder. It's a how-to document. If you want to engage in this kind of video analysis, these are the steps that you have to go through. And it took me months to figure out or to rethink about these video editing softwares from a qualitative lens. And so by going through this process and experimenting with things that worked and didn't work, I created different figures as well as write-ups of things to think about from a qualitative lens in these programs. And this is one example. You don't see what these letters mean, but essentially in this, in this write-up, which will be available to anyone that wants to take a look, there's a bunch of different things to think about. And these letters just point to different tools and different things that are important when you're in these video editing softwares. They're actually just associated with notes that explain what you're looking at. This is your workflow, correct? Exactly. For anyone that's interested in doing this kind of work of using video as not only a storytelling output, but also a process for analysis, I created a how-to document of essentially my experience going through this process. And there's a variety of different steps to go through and this information can come available to anyone that wants to look at it. But one of the things that I did was I go kind of step-by-step step through all the different things to think about within these specific platforms and particularly geared towards this kind of a qualitative output. And a lot of these features, a lot of these kind of descriptions, they're of course overlapped with anyone that wants to create a documentary as well, but they're just certain ways of thinking about this from this qualitative academic side. And this is one example of uh, a figure that just has uh, letters associated with each of diff the different functions that I, I thought was important to note, and then just descriptions of what these things are and how they might relate to the qualitative mm -hmm. analysis. And in this document, I talked through all the different stages. In terms of the workflow, these are the steps that I outline for this, what I call a video-based qualitative analysis. And it's still kind of an ongoing in the works process, but this is what I went through to create the film as well as qualitative outputs. And so I start with setting up the workflow in both Final Cut Pro as well as a bit in Lumberjack Builder. And then there's certain stages of the qualitative analysis that are focused within Lumberjack Builder. There are others that are focused within both Lumberjack and Final Cut. And then there are certain aspects of the process that are just within Final Cut Pro. And so just to quickly go over some of these things and anyone that's engaged in any kind of qualitative thematic analysis a lot of these steps aren't necessarily new. There's a lot of people that go through these broad stages of transcribing and familiarizing yourself with the data, generating codes, searching for themes and subthemes. These are all things that you know I, I more or less just was influenced by or, or took from standard qualitative practices, but applied them to this video editing software. 
And so these are the stages that I went through within these platforms with information on how to actually engage these platforms in the most useful way. Again, these are just some of the stages that I went through. And in this how-to document, I go through as much of the detail that I felt was important to people, whether you're a filmmaker or you're not a filmmaker. And I hope there's a lot of people that might not necessarily have experience with, say, Final Cut Pro. So that's where I give an overview of what events are, what projects are, things like that. But people that are using video information for analysis, hopefully use these platforms in a different way. I really like the way you have combined the left and right side of the brain on this project. It's pretty amazing. I think there's something here for everyone, even if you don't want to go through the qualitative analysis of your documentary filmmaker, you have gone through the final cut process and the lumberjack process. Um, you've got a beautiful film here for people to see. You have scientific journals that you're writing for. And then in addition to it, I think what you have here is a potential for an amazing manual, a workflow manual that people can use. Where can they go to get it? They can see this workflow uh, how-to document on our website, which is www.herdfilm.ca. It's also associated with a journal article that we can share in the notes. It's called Moving Images, Moving Methods, all about uh, using documentary film for qualitative analysis. Or they can just reach out to me to get a hold of this information. And, you know, I'm very keen on hopefully sharing this process with other people that might want to do this work because... I feel like there's potential for doing more with these two broad fields of documentary filmmaking and qualitative analysis. I think there's ways that academics can benefit because they have all the in-depth analytics and approaches, but might lack some of the communication abilities and ways that documentary filmmakers can benefit because they've got the storytelling processes down, but they might not have all of it, you know, data-driven. They might not have anything to show aside from these films and the visuals. And so this is a way to really have kind of a multidimensional way of influencing people's decisions, spreading awareness, and having the biggest impact about stories that are important. Many times when we go off and we're making a documentary and we're talking to people, our analysis is based on instinct. Now, what you've done is you've brought another element into it that can help us take it one step further, a big step further, so that we can validate what we may or may not be thinking. And I love that. I love taking it that one step further. So people can go to herdfilm.ca, and there's various drop-downs there. I'm assuming they can find your manual under research. Is that correct? Yep, that's okay. right watch the trailer and see some of the beautiful pictures when they go into the film drop down and i can hardly wait to see the photo book i think it's going to be beautiful and i do hope you get distribution very soon because this is not just a beautiful film but it's a way of working that people need to know about and it's covering an issue that's really important to these people and to the world you know we're all connected that's a very important part of this too Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you again for recognizing these different pieces. And I want this story to be out there because it's important for Inuit and the amount of work that we put in as a team, but also the amount of struggles and, and challenges that Inuit communities have been through um, with the caribou declines. They want their voices shared. And so we're hoping that this film will be seen widely by people 
to learn more about the topic. But on the kind of methodological and procedural side, I personally am excited for this work to get out there from this kind of behind the scenes view, because I think that more people can do this kind of work, especially as video is becoming more accessible to make and do. There's a lot more you can do than just creating a storytelling output. You can do so much more with that. And I think that will benefit researchers, filmmakers alike. So David, tell us where people should go to contact you if they want more information. You can contact me by visiting our website, or you can contact me uh, personally by reaching out to boorishdavid at gmail.com. So that's B-O-R-I-S-H, David at gmail.com. And I'm happy to talk with anyone that is open to learning more about this and pursuing their own research slash documentary film goals. I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in this. And thank you so much for being with us today. He's David Borish. I'm Serena Catania. You've been listening to OWC Radio. And remember what I tell you guys every time, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Check this website out. I think you'll like it. Have a great day. And thank you for being here with us.